everyone. Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Brian Gottlieb is not with us this week, uh, seeing as how this is just a special bonus episode. And in his place, I have longtime friends, former Magic professional player, and now lawyer, Noah Wild. Hey, Jerry. Noah, we are going to talk about mental health with, I think, a little bit of a focus on depression and how it relates to gaming and everything. And you and I go way back to the early 2000s. And, you know, we've we've been friends since then. And I didn't know that, you know, you had anything going on with you in in this vein. And I don't know, you know, what you knew about me or whatever, but like I actually found out about this through an article you wrote on Star City way back. Yeah, that was a long time ago, 2005, I think. Yeah, so just tell me, I guess, and everyone else listening, uh, your history with, you know, mental health, depression, magic history, you know, if you have any fun anecdotes from <laughs> me as a child, I'm sure listeners would also love to hear that stuff. You were an adorable child, Jerry. Uh, you were so precocious. You'd run around, you know, digging through trash, you know, tugging on people. You were just all over the place. It was great. You were a pleasure to be around. I, we I think you. we're we're going back a little bit further than, <laughs> you know, my teenage magic days. But yeah, all that stuff sounds legit. <laughs> we liked you. Everyone liked you, Jerry. You're a fun guy. You're a part of the community. You know, we appreciated that. A history of mental health. It's a complicated question. When I wrote that article, I wasn't trying to be autobiographical. The thing about mental health, and that was like really apparent to me about that time, was in our community especially, but I think kind of every community, it was just pervasive. There were so many people that clearly had depression or some mental health issue, and it really wasn't talked about ever. Like if you hung out with people enough, you would see good days and bad days. And it just wasn't talked about. It wasn't part of the conversation. Sometimes the opposite. Sometimes people would be made fun of if they were struggling or something. You know how competitive we can be and how we sniff out vulnerability and exploit it sometimes. And I just saw it as so, so common that I wanted to write about it. I did have some personal relationships with it, but it really wasn't my goal to be this is me, this is my cry for help or anything like that. Big picture, I thought about being a mental health counselor for a while. These are issues I've thought about all my life. My father had depression, has depression. He was suicidal at times. And so I've just always been studious. I've been curious about that process and about health and treatment and things like that. I ended up getting a degree in applied psychology. I, I went a different direction. As you said, I'm a lawyer now. I think I think that's your your program that you have to have a co-host that's a lawyer on it. But for a Recently, while... Recently, yeah, that's been the trend. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about the intersection of the law too on this stuff. But, you know, for a good long time, maybe all my life, I've just been interested in the psychology of people, the way people think and react to the world and their internal processes, things like that. So I, I had realized I had study this and I learned this and I observed so much that I felt compelled to write something about it just so I could share my thoughts with other people. And, you know, that article struck a chord, which I appreciate. A lot of people reached out to me afterwards and said it really was helpful for them. Yeah. Like I said, uh, that thing popped up in like 2005 and it was not a thing that was talked about basically at all. And it, it just struck me because, you know, here, here was this person that, I knew and 
you were like the first one willing to like go out on a limb and actually talk about this stuff. And like, you know, Star City was willing to print it. And it was a lot more taboo back then. And I would like to think that we're making some amount of strides to actually normalize, destigmatize, be able to talk about this sort of stuff. And that was really the first thing I saw just about it, you know, and it was it was groundbreaking to me. I was lucky that Star City was supportive because I had a, I had a writing background back then and I was writing pretty regularly for them. And I had developed a relationship with somebody who could produce content. And I think Ted Knudsen was the editor then and he was very supportive of articles that were experimental. <laughs> I remember I did I did one as like a fake term report that was just like a, a pretend kid. Uh, maybe I was channeling you at the time, but just a pretend kid who was talking about crazy adventures in the tournament that never happened. And I did a fake set review one time. So they were, they were really uh, receptive to articles that were not just standard deck reports and tournament reports, um, which I appreciate. Uh, and I appreciate you, Jerry, for putting this on today. You're, you're talking about destigmatizing, but this is kind of the process. You just talk about it and you get it out into the public consciousness, like step by step. Yeah, man. That's why we're here. So with with your dad and everything was I don't want to ask if it was easy because I think I know the answer to that. But like, were things easier with regards to like mental health, depression, talking about it in your household, given that that was a thing that affected him? I didn't learn about it until my teen years. We didn't talk about it growing up. I think with my kids, I've got a five year old and two year old now. I would probably talk about it sooner. I've never been suicidal personally, so you know that's a blessing. So I don't have to have that conversation with them. But it came up because there's a family history. His mother and father, his siblings, they all had depression. And when my dad talked about it, he would talk about growing up in this this thing that occurred that no one really did talk about, and he wanted to make a difference. And I think he did make a difference. You know, looking back at my childhood now, I can see his own bad days. And he, at the moment, he wouldn't say, I'm having a bad day. I'm having like a depressive episode right now. I'm not able to do that. And when you're a parent, you don't really get time off as a parent anyway, or at least it's challenging. Right. But I think he did a really brave thing telling his kids about his experiences and being willing to share how he was feeling at times. Yeah, I, I mean, my, my family was basically the opposite, I suppose. Uh I could make guesses as to, you know, what various family members were going through and everything. Uh, but ultimately, I don't know because it wasn't something that was talked about. And, you know, basically what you were talking about before, where it's like, you know, if if I was having a bad mental health day or was depressed or whatever, they would not be kind about it. You know, like they, they were not trying to make me feel better. It was more about just like making me feel bad about being weak. So yeah. that's kind of the situation I grew up in. So yeah, like, like I said, you know, to, to see your article, it's just like, Oh, like maybe, maybe this is just a thing and we can talk about it. And it is a mental illness. It is not a weakness. And there was there was a line in your article that stuck with me that was, you know, something about like someone having like a, a broken leg and you just chop it off. It like it wasn't about that, you know, but it's like if if someone is like legitimately sick or whatever, you aren't just like, oh, yeah, you know, scrap the person entirely. Yeah. I mean, if someone has diabetes, you're not going to be like, walk it off. It's just an illness. That right. Yeah. There you go. Treatment. Yeah, exactly. The thing with my dad was that he would tell us these things. But what I wish he had told us 
growing up is when he was in the moment and saying, I'm having a tough time right now. Cause I think I would have been receptive to that. Um, I think our whole family would have been, but it was only like after, you know, you have like a blow up or he'd just be a different person on that day that, you know, you could put the pieces together. And so I think a lot of this about mental health in general is about just being conscious and figuring out where you are at that moment and not looking back and saying, Oh yeah, last week I was really depressed when I didn't get out of bed for a couple of days, you know, like it's obvious in retrospect, but the trick is knowing it in the moment and then taking steps when you're in the moment. Right. And and that can be hard too. I mean, speaking from personal experience, like growing up, I don't really remember a, a whole lot of difference between like good days and bad days. Like it, I, I mostly just remember bad days, you know? So it's, I I think I'm a lot better now, both with my overall mental health and being self-aware enough to understand like what's going on when it's happening. But like as a kid, not knowing what was actually going on with me, you know, it was really hard to actually pinpoint that stuff and be like, oh, this is exactly what's going on. Oh yeah. It's tough. And it's still tough as an adult sometimes. And as a kid, yeah, you just don't have the language for it or the internal comprehension. I mean, where I was as a teenager is much, much, much different than where I am now because I can talk about with other people and I have the language and the the maturity to internally look at myself. But yeah, back then, forget about it. I was reckless and acting often self-destructively because I just didn't know any better and I didn't know why I was acting that way. And then you have this guilt and then there's a cycle. Same. And yeah, it's it's a problem. I've always said depression and anxiety are like insidious because by the nature of their disease, they make it harder for you to fix them and get better. You know, it's like uh, the analogy I've used is like you need a wheelchair and the wheelchair store is at the top of three flights of stairs. It's just harder than it would be for something else because it interferes with your ability to help yourself. And you can't do anything about that except be aware of it and, and work with it. Yeah. For me, I mean, I, I knew that there was this thing that was afflicting me for sure. And part of me was like, you know, trying to do the, the, the toxic masculinity thing of just being like, Oh, like, this is just how I am. I can power through it or whatever, even getting past that and knowing that there was something wrong. It still took a decade for me to be able to get help. And part of that was because like when, I'm having a bad day. There's no way in hell you could convince me to like get on the phone with a stranger and like try and schedule a a psych appointment or a therapist or whatever. And then when I'm having a normal day and feeling good, it's just like, oh, look, I can handle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a big problem. And I think one, one trick, I guess, on the bad days is to kind of redefine what makes the day a success or what makes the day a good day. You know, on a normal day, if it's you get to work and you didn't drink yourself into a coma at the end of the day or something like that. Um, on a bad day, it could be like, I got dressed today. I went out to get the mail. I, I bought eggs, you know, it's just like a minor victory, but if it changes a, a terrible day to just not a great day, you know, you can take that win and say I, today wasn't as bad as it could have been. Right. And I, I think that's important. And, and that's part of what makes this so difficult kind of where it's just like, I got dressed today. That doesn't sound like a thing that should be hard. So it's really difficult even for you to internalize that. Like, you know how difficult things like that can be at times, but it's really difficult to convince yourself that 
you know, this normal act, this thing that everyone else sees as normal is, is actually so hard to accomplish. So there's a couple things I want to say to that, which is, and we kind of alluded to this in the beginning, there's this problem is present for a lot of people, a lot of people. And you really have no idea what people are struggling with internally. You just don't know. The person who is checking out your groceries, you know, could have a mom with a cancer diagnosis and the, some cop who pulls you over, you know, his wife might have left him. Like there's so many struggles and problems people have and that they have to deal with and they have to overcome or manage as best as they can. So it might seem like a simple act to say that I put on clothes today, but for a lot of people that can be really challenging. And I don't, I don't want to take it away from those people who have their own problems and their own struggles that simple acts for themselves that they overcame is anything less than a victory, anything less than something worthy that you can be proud of. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And it's certainly gotten easier with time, you know, and just not comparing yourself to others and, you know, how easy something is for you compared to someone else or vice versa, I think is a way that is going to help you be able to internalize those things and realize that those sorts of quote unquote small things are actually huge victories. I'm curious, Jerry, like when you're having a bad day, what does that feel like? Or what does that look like? It's, it's a lot of lethargy, like just not really feeling like I want to do anything, like anything is enjoyable. I certainly don't have a lot of energy. And these days, it's sort of especially bad because I have a lot going on. So I have a decent amount of responsibilities. And when I don't feel like doing work things or responding to messages or, you know, going to see people that I had plans with, all of this stuff, all of that just kind of compounds and makes things worse, which sort of creates this depressive spiral. So like I said, I'm, I'm a lot better off these days, thankfully. Like I, I have gotten, you know, some help and I'm medicated and that has been great. I've tried a few things and it, it has worked for me mostly. So I am grateful for that because I don't know how I could handle all of the stuff that I'm doing now with without that sort of help but yeah it's just uh a lot of kind of feeling like baseline or baseline minus you know it's like i don't have really highs and lows they're just kind of like medium but it's like medium trending low if that makes sense it does and i, I appreciate you talking about that that sometimes reflects how i'm feeling um and i also appreciate that you you talk about management and how it's you're not cured it's just a process that you have to keep things under control as best as you can. And some days are better than right. others. Like that's, that's totally correct. It's, it's not something you cure. It's just something you manage. Yeah. So, I mean, what about you? Since, uh, you know, there's, there's two of us, we, we haven't ever actually talked about this despite <laughs> being friends for two decades. So, yeah, to me, it's like, I don't know about the energy precisely, but everything is worse. Like the things that would just normally be an annoyance or I would shrug off like really impact me like this is awful and I'm just mad about it and the things that I would normally enjoy I just don't enjoy in the same way I don't get excited for things and back in the day when I would feeling feeling grumpy or feeling bad I would try to like chase good feelings you know I'd like load up more magic and be like okay we're gonna keep playing we're gonna keep playing which is just the worst idea possible <laughs> I can tell you from experience because you're just trying to like yes chase an endorphin 
and you're just not feeling it. Like your, your body is not feeling those feelings, but you can certainly make yourself feel worse. You can certainly get angrier or more unhappy with things. Yeah. It's just like you take your baseline and you shift it backwards a couple of degrees. And that's, that's how you are at that point. For me, it was like a really low tolerance for irritation. Like that's, that's how I knew things were just pissing me off out just so much. And it's not like I would get so mad. I would start throwing punches or breaking stuff. It would just be like internally. I'm just like, I'm so frustrated. I'm so mad. Everything is just really unpleasant right now. And now these days, if I start to feel that way, I'm like, hold on, I know what's going on. I've got to get myself out of these like triggering situations and, you know, shift my environment or shift my thought processes in some way. It's easier said than done sometimes, but that's what it always looked like for me. Just, just not being able to enjoy things in that normal way. Yeah. I, I relate to a lot of that is especially the, you know, like minor annoyances just seem amplified. Right. And in, in those situations, since I'm working from home and basically have my own hours, like I, I just try and take a nap, just go to sleep if I can. It's, you know, sometimes this happens when I'm traveling, I'm away, I'm with people or whatever, and I can't do that. And it's just, you know, try and get some time away by myself to kind of not necessarily calm down, but just like, you know, get centered or whatever, try and internalize what's actually going on and it's like okay this this thing that has kind of pissed me off is not that big of a deal this is a result of something else and then just try and get back to that baseline i know a lot of people who have that feeling like to self-medicate i mean i kind of alluded to that talking about trying to play more magic or play more games and trying to get wins and that was like a form of self-medication but you know some people do drugs or alcohol to just change their mental state and i wasn't fully aware of how common that was back in 2005 when I wrote the article, but I see it all the time now, especially as a lawyer, I see it all the time and it's, it's not, it doesn't work (laughs) at all. It is talk about spirals. You know, that's a good way to really get yourself into a dark place. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're mostly just replacing how shitty you feel in the moment with something else, but those other things, drugs, alcohol have, way more consequences attached to them that eventually you're going to find yourself in a worse place. Even if you manage to, you know, skip ahead a few days or numb the pain for a little bit, or just manage to feel something a little bit different. Thankfully, I've mostly been able to convince myself to stay away from those things because I kind of knew that it would be an issue. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about the legal ramifications of all this stuff, you know, drinking and driving and all the rest of it. But there's also your physical body gets affected by this in a way that you really do feel worse afterwards. And it creates sometimes some permanent damage or at least long lasting damage. I don't have a problem with drugs or alcohol per se. It's just not a good substitute for mental health, if that's what you need. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, I I know several people who, you know, drink to enjoy themselves. They drink responsibly. I know several people who take drugs like semi-recreationally who are completely fine. And typically the people who are using drugs and or alcohol as an escape from mental health or any sort of other real life issue, like those are the people who tend to end up in bad situations for sure. You know, back when I was playing seriously, I really like took losses hard because so much of my identity was wrapped up in being a, a competent magic player. Something that's really helped me is diversifying my interests, diversifying what I do. I mean, I don't play magic anymore, except for like I played once 
you know, at the beginning of the year, and we can talk about that. But, but back when I didn't have much else going on, but just playing at a very high level, it wasn't healthy for me. It wasn't, I, did, I wasn't depressed because I was doing that, but I was certainly more vulnerable to feeling terrible because I had just wrapped up my identity and my existence into this game, which is intrinsically random and sometimes good players lose and sometimes <laughs> bad players win. It's ironic a little bit because I think it made me a better player that I was so focused on it, but it certainly wasn't healthy. And I don't know like how your listeners skew as far as their quality, how, how dedicated they are to the game, but it's something I can say from personal experience that it's, it's can be dangerous grounds to get too invested into it. Yeah. Our, our listener base is trending on the spike side, typically fairly enfranchised and organized play like, you know, PTQ grinder plus, but also you know, have a lot of people who are just getting started in magic through arena or, are have been playing for a while, but are now just, you know, diving into competitive play and stuff like that. No matter what, that that sort of stuff affects everyone, you know, where, especially at the tippy top, right? It's like you are so used to winning or like you expect to win because of your skill level compared to someone else. It Like a win just feels normal and then a loss feels terrible. And I, I think that that is, it's like pretty close to how it affects a lot of people, I think. And the flip side is this game has so many opportunities to make you a better person. I learned so much about communication, about statistics, using the resources I had available to accomplish things. But the community, especially, is something I've really enjoyed. I mean, we're, we've been friends for 20 years or something. And I, and I appreciate those relationships. And there's so many, so many things that this game can offer you to make you a better and more rounded person. But it could cut both ways, as you know. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just kind of a random question here. I, I, I sort of want to get into your background and like how things were for you back then, I guess. But like the, the question I want to know is at your peak, how good do you think you were? I wasn't the best in the world, but I would say I was world class. I could compete on the international stage. I'd say at my peak. You know, the problem with Minnesota was that nobody wanted to be on a team. Nobody wanted to work together to do deck building. And that's always what, what I felt cost us from reaching some wins. We love drafting. We love playing. But the work of just playtesting and editing decks and trying to refine it, just nobody wanted to do it. And I always thought if I had a group of people who were as like-minded, and this, was, this wasn't before the internet, but this was kind of before there was easy communication along the lines. Things were stratified into their like local communities. So California had a big group that would play together and Pittsburgh and New York had big groups that would play together. And then us in the Midwest were kind of off on their own. But I, I did feel like, cause I had played a lot of these people that I could hold my own. No, you could obviously, but I, yeah, I do think a lot of us, maybe it was just hubris. I don't know. It was just like, we we're all kind of doing our own thing and not, necessarily trying to ask others for help and we had our our friends that we hung out with and everything but yeah there was there was no sort of team or like regimented testing training anything like that and i don't think i had the internet until 2002 and then around that point i got magic online and you know there there were like clans and stuff like that and i met a bunch of people and that is basically how i got better so yeah, just interacting with more people helped a lot. And obviously, 
you know, back to the mental health thing, there were days where magic online was like the worst thing possible for me. There's, there's also just a lot of good that came from it and having those relationships and people to talk to and people I got to see at events. And it, it made me look forward to things and encouraged me to travel and, and stuff like that. And I think overall magic or just, you know, having a community, something to sink a lot of my time and mental energy into helped a lot with mental health. Yeah, I think I talked about diversifying my interests, and I think writing really helped me with that. It led me, it introduced me to a lot of other people who I could talk to and collaborate with sometimes, and just let me look at things in a different way. And also, if I could lose a lose a tournament but generate an entertaining report out of it, that always stung a little bit less. Yeah, writing writing has been. I mean, it, it basically kickstarted where I am now, where I'm still writing, but I'm mostly just producing a lot of different forms of content. And that's how I'm choosing to engage with magic now, rather than doing the, you know, competitive, basically trying to only succeed myself, you know, being able to help other people and teach and see other folks succeed with help, like a a little bit of help that they've gotten from me has been huge. You know, It just, it makes me feel so much better than winning a tournament by myself ever did. And a lot of that came from writing too, where it's like that gave me an outlet, made me feel great. It was, like you said, a a thing that you could do after a tournament that went poorly that would still allow you to feel that sense of accomplishment and everything. So (laughs) it sounds cheesy, but a lot of my happiness has come from the service of others as a dad, as a lawyer representing human beings, you know, I don't represent corporations, I just represent people. Um, I've gotten a lot of satisfaction out of working with other people. I, I tell people I'm a terrible advocate for myself. I'm a terrible business person, but I'm a pretty good lawyer because I really do care about my clients' outcomes and I care about their well-being and I care about my kids' well-being. So I'm a pretty present dad and things like that. And I, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody that you just go out and serve soup in a soup kitchen and maybe you feel better. But for some people, it probably does. And just getting out of your head and interacting with the world in some way, whether it's writing something or volunteering or coaching a team, you know, whatever it is for you, um, I think it I think it does help for a lot of people. Yeah, for me, I think early on, I did want, you know, some something that I could point to where it was like, oh, this quantifies me as a, a success or whatever, right? And competition was a very clean way of doing that, where it's like, if I go win FNM or win a PTQ or whatever, then I get to feel great about it. And over time, that has shifted to being able to point to other things like, oh, I wrote this article I really liked, or this person said that my content helped them learn or do well at their tournaments or dude, even even putting on pants in the morning, you know, like these these are all wins for me now. If you tie your emotional health to something outside of your control, it's a recipe for disaster. If you say, I'm going to be really depressed if I don't win the lottery or if my candidate doesn't win their election or I don't win this tournament or anything else that you just can't fully control, you're going to set yourself up for failure and you're going to set yourself up for a bad day. If it's things like, I'm going to work on this article today, I'm going to put on pants, I'm going to go outside and give a dollar to the panhandler on the corner. You can control that and then you can define a success and you can succeed on what you define. It makes a big difference. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And that's part of the reason why when I was still focusing on competing, a lot of 
what I tried to focus on was just like learning and the process. I mean, if, if I did poorly, poorly at a tournament, but at the end of it, I had a bunch of knowledge that I could use the next week, then I counted that as a win. Just, yeah, focusing on a thing that is inherently random and, you know, granted magic, like the best players do win more often than they lose, but it's not by a significant margin. You know, you are effectively flipping weighted coins. So yeah, just do do anything. Try and find something that is within your control that you can just take away something from and like be able to count those as victories. You know, just tying a competition that is coin flipping to your self-esteem is a recipe for disaster. And it only took us 10, 20 years to, to learn this, but we'll pass the knowledge on, hey. on to other people. Hey, we... Yeah, we got there, yeah. you know. Better, better and, late than never. Yeah, people are, are going to listen to this and they're, you know, going to nod and they're going to agree. And then whether or not they are able to implement that themselves is a whole other thing. And, you know, maybe a couple years down the line, five years down the line, whatever, they will. And that will come with life experience. And they may or may not even remember this podcast episode, right? But like, and maybe they'll. You, you kind of have to do it. Huh? Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but maybe they'll share their lessons they learned with somebody else too and help them along. Right, exactly. I mean, I, it's it's one thing to to listen to it and to be like, yeah, that that sounds legit. That's probably right. But to be able to implement it yourself is a whole other thing. And I don't know. I'm kind of just here like trying to remind people of stuff like that every week in the hopes that it just like seeps in subconsciously. We talked about this at the beginning, but... I have found, I don't know if your experience matches this, but I found that people who are attracted to magic or high level competitive pursuits have a tendency to have these issues, have these depressive issues more often than the general population. And there's been some research on that that shows that introverts are more likely to have it than extroverts. Creative people are more likely to have it than non-creative people. And those are creative introverts. This game has a lot of, Um, I'm not sure I would qualify myself as either one of those things, but even so, I've seen in my communities and kind of the national community, there seems to be just a higher prevalence of this issue among its players. Right. And uh, we talked about this a little bit before the, the cast, but I, I think of it as a sort of chicken or the egg thing where obviously magic attracts a lot of people like you described, but also there are certainly times where magic can induce those sort of feelings or at least make them less manageable based on the nature of competition, right? So if you are someone like that who needs something like magic that you can just sink yourself into as an escape and you are fully aware of what you're getting into because, you know, you're you're a smart person, what are some things that people can do in order to, I don't know, just, you know, it's like, you know about it, but how do you actually interact within the system when you're there knowing that you have these sort of uh, potholes, you know? Well, big picture, you're going to have successes, you're going to have failures. You know, we can talk about this on paper or on the podcast or whatever. And then, you know, in the moment, there's going to be times where you slip up and you're just going to have a bad day and react badly. And I think, Big picture, you've got to forgive yourself for when you don't have a perfect day or you don't act perfectly because it's a process and it's about management. And I think 
it took me a while to be forgiving of myself when I didn't act perfectly. But it's I certainly feel better about it when I go to bed and say, I could have done better about my mental health today. But, you know, I, I'll just try try again tomorrow or the next time this comes up. The feelings are real. People who don't know or want to diminish the game will say it's just a game. You shouldn't really have strong feelings about it. But you're a human being. You have real feelings. They're not they're not pretend feelings. They're genuine feelings about a game. And it's totally legitimate to have that. You know, there's like a story about a, a rich kid who has all the toys but feels lonely. And everyone looks at him and say, oh, you're so rich. You've got all this stuff. How could you be sad? But the loneliness is genuine. Their sadness about not having human contact is genuine. All this stuff is genuine. Even if you're not, even if it, things could be worse for other people, I think you can look at yourself and say, I genuinely don't feel good today. That is how I'm feeling. And just, you know, accept that, that it's real. And that's how you feel at the time. So as you're talking about potholes, I think a big issue people have is saying, I shouldn't feel this way because it's just a game or because I'm smart and I shouldn't feel this way when intelligence and emotion have nothing to do with each other and, <laughs> and giving yourself a break when you're not perfect and you, you don't act as well as you could have as the healthiest possible version of yourself and just try again the next time. So that's, that's my big picture suggestion. And then I could talk about like little, little things. Yeah. You talked about being able to forgive yourself for not being perfect. And I know that it's just one of the things that kind of happens with magic is that there are just so many micro decisions in every game and certainly over the course of every tournament. And there's a, a lot of things outside of it too, just like, you know, with, with what deck you played and how much you slept and, and stuff like that. It's like, I think a lot of people are trying to play magic to challenge themselves because they think that they are capable and rightfully so, I think. How do you actually get to the point where you get to say that it's okay when, especially a lot of the time, this is, you know, maybe the one thing that you have going on and this is the thing that I guess you've just sort of accidentally decided is going to define your self-worth in everything. It's not very easy to separate those things. You know, you talked about uh, uh, intelligence not having anything to do with emotion, and I, I definitely agree with that, but it is hard. Oh, yeah, it's hard. When I took a big loss in a tournament, I would I would feel it for at least the rest of the day. It was there. It was present. Again, you can make it worse by, you know, drinking yourself into oblivion or something or engaging in reckless behavior. So, you know, except that there's going to be some bad feelings, but try not to do too much damage. Uh, it is hard. And the thing with magic is that these tournaments don't come up every day. Magic Online is one thing, but if you're going to the Pro Tour, you're going to a Grand Prix, that's it. You were there, you had your experience. If it wasn't a good one, you don't get to do a redo or come back the next day and do the same tournament over again. You know, poker, you lose a hand of poker, shuffle up, there's another hand going. Magic tournaments aren't so common, and that, that can be challenging if you spent so many hours preparing for it just to have a disappointing finish. The advice is the same, except that it's the nature of it. It's okay to feel bad feelings and try to have like things going on in your life besides this one tournament that you've been prepared for that you can fall back on and lean on when magic is not doing it for you. So is, is there a correlation between the types of people who end up getting involved in magic, usually very deeply and the ability to be able to like spread out your interests. I mean, you, you talked about diversifying a little bit and that sounds good in theory, but 
speaking from my own experience, it is very difficult for me to do things casually and very difficult for me to start new things because generally I just don't want to do things that I'm bad at and I don't really enjoy the learning process. Well, let me, let me say like 40 the minutes onboarding, in, really. <laughs> let me say 40 minutes into our podcast. None of us are experts. None of us are doctors. We, this isn't medical advice, whatever, whatever. Caveat, caveat. Probably. There's probably a correlation between obsessive tendencies and people who are attracted to this game. I mean, this game is amazing amazing the things you can do with it the way you can choose to play and choose to interact with it yeah i'm sure it does attract people like that and that's just something you need to be aware of if that's your personality type that it's dangerous that you could set yourself up for a bad time people who have alcoholic family members should be really cautious about alcohol because they have genetics that say you're more likely to get addicted to things it's a reality i don't have an answer except be aware of where you could where you could linger or could have a problem and, you know, do your best. And if you notice a problem cropping up, take some consciousness and think about if you should make a change at this point or if things are getting unhealthy or you think things are manageable. Word. So early 2000s, you're you're playing Magic. I think first time I went to Dreamers, the store in St. Louis Park, was probably like 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. And that that is where I got to know you a little bit better uh, after having seen you at you know, states and PTQs and pre-releases and stuff like that. But like, what else were you doing then besides magic? Like what was going on in your life? (sighs) So that's kind of a weird time for me because I graduated high school in 1998 and I went to college for a year in St. Cloud State, which is a hundred miles north of the Twin Cities. And I was the most miserable I've ever been in my life at that point. I mean, probably I was really depressed at my senior year of high school too. And that what I should have done which no one talked to me about, was take some time off. Don't go back to school. I was super sick of school, but it was just like the expectation. Straight from high school to college. There was there was some issues with my application paperwork for the local University of Minnesota. So I got to St. Cloud State, which is a nice school, I guess, but they had problems, especially back then. I, I think it's improved a lot, but there was a lot of misogyny, a lot of racism there. And, you know, I, I went to an inner city high school. I was not, not, uh, I didn't have any experience dealing with some of the stuff I saw there. And so I was just incredibly unhappy there. And I basically flunked out and I was just drifting. Like I came back to magic because it was a comforting place for me, but it was not a happy time from 1999, 2000, that kind of thing. I think 2001, I was working. I was, I was taking some time off. I might've been going to community college just to get back into that because I did miss I realized after I had left school that I missed learning and I missed being in school, but I kind of wanted it to be less overbearing, if that makes sense. I wanted to be able to choose my timing to go to school and choose what classes right. to go to. And so that was something I learned about myself. And this is why I really enjoyed law school. And I really did well there um, was because when I was when I was in a place that I wanted to learn, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I just wasn't back then in college. 2001. I was probably living in an apartment in the Twin Cities or a suburb, probably with some friends. And I was probably just working and playing a lot of magic. I think I was over like the worst parts of things. And I was just trying to get my my stuff together before I moved to Seattle in 2002 or 2003. I think 2002, late 2002. So did, did you have any interest then or was it just like, you know, magic was around? It was something that you could devote as much or as little time as you wanted to? and 
I was like, certainly, I was almost certainly doing it a lot, but I think that having a job and having friends where I was doing things that weren't just magic was helpful for me. I was probably successful then. Like uh, as you look at things, um, I really stopped playing like 2000. Well, I, I worked at wizards for a little bit, as you know, and then I went to law school right after that. So that was really the decline, but I would say early 2000s, mid 2000s, I was still qualifying for pro tours and attending them to my, to my memory. It all kind of runs together at this point, but I do think after having that really negative experience at St. Cloud and then going back into college that I was maturing a lot and I was learning more about myself and making healthier decisions. So now you're a family man, you're married, two kids, correct? Yep. Five and a two year old. And full-time lawyering job. You're still involved in magic to some degree because I don't know, we, we chat occasionally and you'll drop things that are hints about, you know, being up to date on some amount of stuff. <laughs> so I don't know exactly what your involvement is or if you're just like jamming games on arena every night or what the deal is, but like you talked about branching out in other places. I mean, what, what else has been appealing to you, you know, from this person who's obviously very intelligent and liked magic and spent a lot of time on it. I don't play magic anymore. I played grand prix Seattle in the spring of this year. And I've got a, I've got a story that kind of ties to mental health about that in a minute, but that was the first tournament I played in years, literally years. I didn't follow any of the sets. People were saying cards were banned. A new set came out, pre-release, none of it. I had no information. I still couldn't tell you what like the last four years of sets were at anything or any of the cards. <laughs> Once in a while, someone would, I'd be at like a party or something. I mean, like, I don't go to parties really, but like a birthday party or invited or something and they would draft and maybe I would jump in or maybe I would just watch some people because we, we have a lot of mutual friends who still play and they post about it on Facebook and, you know, you pick up stuff from that. But I, I just, I was not a player. There was literally no time, especially when my daughter was born, that stuff just went out the window and I can't, I can't play casually at this point. Some people enjoy it, but for me personally, when you've played at high levels of competition, it's really hard to go backwards and just play like casual and play all Kev Walker card decks or whatever else it is. Plus, Plus, even then, the time involved and the money involved to prepare something. It's just there's other things I'd rather be doing. I did enjoy the tournament I played in Seattle, but that was like modern modern masters or modern horizons or something where it was intentionally an old school set. So I enjoyed getting back for that reason because there wasn't anything I had to learn. It was it was kind of all there already. Well, it was like mostly new cards, though. Yeah, but like it was sealed and it was a lot of old old mechanics that I had experience with. So I felt. I felt comfortable with it, although my inexperience with it did catch up with me when it was drafting time. But yeah, for yeah. the sealed, it was fun. So it's it's basically that's it, right? Like whenever a GP comes to Seattle, that might be enough to get you out to play, but you have you know no itch to download Arena or anything like that. I I have never played a game of Arena. I have an old Magic Online account. I haven't logged in on half a decade at least. Uh, I don't even have a Windows computer <laughs> anyway to play that stuff anyway. <laughs> What I'm doing now for fun is I play Hearthstone sometimes. I get invited to board game nights once a month or so, and I try to make those. I really enjoy that. That discreet beginning, middle, end to the game, I appreciate, and just hanging out with people. I do open mic night once in a while at the stand-up club. That's fun. But a lot of my time is raising kids and work. I mean, that 
takes up a lot of time. I do have a magic podcast I'm working on right now. This is kind of like the denouement of my career where I'm talking to a lot of the old school people about the history of magic. So I'm talking to Richard Garfield and Peter Atkinson and Jamie Wakefield and some other people and just kind of talking about what it was like back in the day. And that's kind of my send off to the game of just like, I'm not getting, I'm not making money on it, but it's nice to have a passion, create a project. I'm going to produce that and release it and people can listen to what things were like back then. And then that's, that's pretty much it, except for what people shove at me on Facebook or something. And I learn about by osmosis. Yeah. And I'm excited for that. I mean, that's definitely something that I'm going to promote because I know you and I know that your, your work is going to be good no matter what it is you choose to do. And you're, you're just not going to do anything half-assed. It's I'm having fun. I'm having fun talking to these people. I, I appreciate that I've done enough with the game that I have enough cachet that they will return my calls basically. And it's been fun setting right. it up, but I'm in no hurry at all to do this. And so like it's November right now, I don't think anything's going to be released until at least February. Okay. So, well, keep so me updated. Have, have and... your listeners do not set their clocks, do not hold their breath. It's going to be a while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're going to forget this immediately after they close their iTunes podcast app or whatever, and then I'll remind them on Twitter. So it'll be fine. Let me know when you have open mic night too, man. I want to go to that. I didn't know that was happening. <laughs> like once every couple of months I go down there. It's fun. Okay. It's, it's, it's a creative pursuit. You know, it's just a different way of doing things. I have no problem with public speaking at all. I do it all the time for my work. So that confidence, if you have confidence in your ability to not get nervous up there, that'll put you in the front half of the pack just automatically. So if anybody is interested in doing open mic, just not being afraid of it and just taking a shot at it, you're, you're going to do better than you think. It's, it's fun. So where does that come from? Because you have always struck me as like, you know, soft-spoken dude. I know that you're not necessarily afraid of very much or whatever. And you talked about, you know, introvert versus extrovert. And I guess I don't even have like a good sense of where you lie. I would have said introvert. Yeah, people give me that a lot. I've taken that Myers-Briggs test a number of times. And, every, and it's not like super reliable science, but... Every time I've taken it, it's I'm dead in the middle. And where right. that where that lands is kind of a performer gene. I've always felt of myself as kind of a performer. I like being around people, but I don't always like doing socialness with them. I really am not good at small talk and things like that. But being in a crowd, having an audience, that's something that, that has really resonated with me. A lot of people think I'm really serious. I'm not I'm not as serious as people think. And so being able to to tell jokes and talk to a crowd is something that I've always enjoyed doing. A lot of my writing has been has had comedy in it. I thought about pursuing that for a little while, but ultimately didn't. But I've, I enjoy I enjoy humor. Still do. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have always chalked you up as a, a person with a good sense of humor. Like you were always joking around with, you know, Corey, Sam, those folks it comes out in your writing too. And just like talking to you and everything. How do you feel about, you know, trying to do something like comedy versus uh, being a lawyer or being a counselor or things like that? Like, was there anything specific that drug you in a different direction? So the reason I stopped wanting to become a counselor was because it was too passive for me. A lot of counseling is letting your patient get to where they're supposed to go naturally and I just wanted to like grab them and shake them. And, you know, it's your mom. It's your mom. It's just like, it's not complicated. 
so for me, and you had to go to a lot more school. Then ironically, I went to more school anyway. But I was I was kind of done once I got my BA. I was like, I want to get in the real world. And I want to do stuff. I had thought about the law for a while. When I was five, my family said I should be a lawyer because I liked arguing so much. And I guess they had a point. But what yeah. I like about the law is like it's an opportunity to help people, but in an assertive way. You can proactively do things. You can control a lot of the things. A lot of it, a lot of it is writing and preparing persuasion and speaking to people in a certain way. And it's just so much flexibility to allow you to be yourself, if that makes sense. There's just like a lot of ways you can put your own style onto things. So you get to help people, but in a creative way, at least a lot I do. It's something that resonated with me. I had an internship with the public defenders when I was in law school, my third year, and I, I fell in love with it and I never looked back and I'm still doing criminal defense where there is a lot of that stylistic choices and a lot of the ability to help people, which I appreciate. Yeah. And you're, you're still doing some writing and uh, you know, you talked about the podcast stuff you have going on, random stand-up nights, I guess, which I didn't know about, but uh, yeah, no talk one about, no one knows the, about that. Don't tell anyone about that, Jerry. This is just between you and me. Okay. Fair enough. You're still maintaining uh, the blog, right? Yes. I have an outline of one. I haven't published in a couple months because it's been, it's been busy, but yes, thank you for reminding me. I'm going to, I'll publish something this week, Jerry. Thank you. I will, I will put something up. This well, week. all right. Plug, plug that because it is, it is good reading basically for anyone. It is interesting. Yeah. It's, it's work. I do like it. It's marketing too, but yeah, I, I feel yeah, like the law, the law is an area where it seems like there's a lot written about it, but there really isn't that much, especially about the nuts and bolts of how things work in the justice system. I think that's actually changing right now that a lot of people who aren't involved in the system care about the criminal justice system. And it's really gratifying to see. I am enjoying being part of that because even though the law is ancient, it's really slow to change and seeing, seeing developments happen and seeing things become more cutting edge has been exciting. And talking about that is something I enjoy. Yeah. And that that hasn't been really anything that I've been exposed to, you know, it's like I, you know, watch law and order or whatever, and then, read your blog when I remember it exists or when you remember to post. But as far as like being on the forefront of everything, it's, it's just kind of like outside of my purview, you know? So we talked about people attracted to their pursuits and their hobbies and also having these obsessive tendencies or these depressive tendencies. And I kind of wish your, your co-host was here because he would probably confirm this, but the law has a huge problem with this huge problem with mental health. People attracted to the law are type A a lot of the time and really hold themselves to a really high standard and get obsessive about things. And there's a ton of substance abuse. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today was because in my community, we lost two people to suicide a couple of years apart. And I mean, my community being like the city where I work and the practice area I have. So like a couple yeah. hundred people and two of them took their own lives relatively recently. And it was pretty devastating for the group. Yeah, I, I can't imagine, man. I mean, over the years, there have been several people who I've been friends with or even just casual acquaintances with, or it's like, you know, I, I hear that someone took their own life and it's like, you know, I, I don't remember the person offhand, but then it's like, oh, I, I met that person, you know, like that person was really nice and really cool. Like you just, you don't have any idea really because the people who are depressed and want to hide it are very good at it. 
yes, they're used to it and they don't want people to know. Can I just give like some PSA advice about it and talk about it a little bit? Yes, please, please. It's the second leading cause of death of ages 15 to 34, which is, as you know, like right through the magic demographic. Accidents are number one and, and suicide's number two. It's, it happens. Yeah, our, our podcast is, I think, like 65, 70 percent, 24 to 35. Yeah. So it's like a real thing in our own community that affects people. There's this, this myth that if you ask somebody if they're feeling suicidal, it makes them more likely to commit suicide. And that's 100% not true. 100% not true. Like if, if you are concerned someone is going to kill themselves, you should be completely direct. Don't use euphemisms and just say, hey, are you thinking about killing yourself? Are you thinking about hurting yourself? Something like that. And they might say yes. Okay. And then you can go to the next step. But beating around the bush or just like punch them in the shoulder, say, hey, everything cool. All right, let's, let's go. Let's go draft or something like that. It's, it's not as helpful. It's better than nothing. But there, there's no instance where saying, are you thinking about suicide? Will someone say, oh, I haven't yet. But now that you bring it up, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. That's just not the real world. And so I would just say to your listeners, if they have anybody in their group they're worried about and like genuinely worried about, they should ask them directly. And if they're not sure, ask them directly. And if they say no, then you know, and you've done something about it. But like, you talk about not seeing the warning signs and that's true. And it's not anyone's responsibility to, to police this, but there are things you can do to help. And one of them is just asking directly about it. Right after, not this pro tour, that was the last weekend, but the one before that, uh, two or three months ago in Barcelona, Alex Stratton, who was a close friend to Brian, my co-host took his own life and Brian was basically like his mentor, you know, uh, it, it hit him really hard. And the first time I met Alex, I played against him in a tournament and, you know, we're just doing the normal tournament BS routine. And he brought up the fact that he knew Brian and that's, that's kind of how we connected. And since then I would like talk to him every tournament and kind of check in on how he was doing and everything. I knew that he had some mental health problems and I had written a couple articles and talked about it on the podcast and stuff. And he reached out to me a few times just so that we could talk about it and everything. And I knew that at one point he was kind of going through a rough patch and I saw him in Barcelona and things seemed basically just different, you know, like he had a smile on his face. It was genuine. He seemed to be like more outgoing as far as talking to people and just being involved in a group. He was playing in his first pro tour and I kind of like chalked it up to like, maybe that, maybe that was it. Like I know that he had been trying to qualify for a long time and uh, he made day two. I think he cashed and then he flew home and, and then he, he died on like the, the Monday or Tuesday after the tournament. And it, it was a huge shock to, to basically everyone, but my roommate actually brought up something that was kind of interesting where he thinks that the reason that Alex was so happy and so different was that he had made the decision already. Maybe like none of us are mental health professionals and it's impossible to right. put on ourselves. Like you've got to catch this. If you had only done something differently, you, he would still be alive or something. Like that. That's, that's not reality either. And it's impossible to maintain. A lot of people don't talk about the organic nature of depression and major depression and things like that. There's a lot of biological components to this genetic and otherwise. 
there was an invisibility invisibilia podcast I listened to a couple of months ago where a woman has is good. Yeah. She had severe depression, severe OCD. Okay. Like debilitating, affecting her life. And she qualified for this experimental treatment where they did brain surgery and installed an electrode into her brain that would stimulate the areas that were deficient and address these symptoms. And it completely worked and she felt much better and she was able to rejoin society. And then during the interview with her, they accidentally turned off the electrode, okay, that was helping her. And instantly she said, oh, well, the gloom is coming back. The anxiety is coming back. The depression is coming back. And it was no external event. It was just this cure that was in her brain. This treatment was turned off for a moment. And then instantly these feelings start bubbling up. So like sometimes it's an external event, um, a sickness, chronic pain, the loss of life. But sometimes there is just a something triggered in your brain that that went to this point. They've talked to people who have survived their attempted suicide and a lot of people regretted trying. Like, you know, they jump off a bridge and they'd survive and once they're falling, they'd say, I, I wish I hadn't done this. I you know, they have that flare of adrenaline and they that chases the bad thoughts away. And then people who, you know, ironically, people who have attempted suicide are more likely to attempt in the future too. It is not a perfectly known process. It's nothing you can do to prevent it from happening ever. You can do your best and you can be present and you can ask them questions. And But sometimes people are just going to take their own life because that is what their brain, their broken brain is telling them that they should do at this point. Right. And I, I bring up Alex and that, that whole experience uh, as far as, you know, like me interacting with him at the pro tour and seeing that he was seemingly doing well and doing well in the tournament and had, you know, finally gotten to the pro tour and everything and was, was kind of crushing it, honestly, that like logically he would be on top of the world. And that's kind of what it seemed like. And that was just not the case and is just another instance of you never really knowing. You don't know. And it's very possible without his community and without you, Jerry, you would have had a much worse time or, Maybe he would have taken his life sooner. You know, you don't know. I'm sure he was grateful for the relationship with you and Brian. He had. Maybe. I, I don't know. Obviously, it's it's way too hard to say. And I don't know. Like, do you do you struggle with with this sort of stuff at all? Where it's just like, could I have done more? Should I have done more? Because you, you know, talked about how you just lost two people in your community and everything. I don't know how well you knew them, but. You know, yeah. for the people involved, it's the hardest thing, I think. <laughs> One was a decent friend. It is hard for the people involved. It's the worst for them. One was a decent friend. We weren't like close, close, but we'd see each other a lot and, you know, do small talk and chat. The last time I saw him was at a conference and I had written a, a comedy Facebook post that was a rant about garlic bread, which sounds stupid saying it out loud, but it was it was actually pretty funny. <laughs> but anyway, he came. Do what you got to do, man. He, it was I was inspired. He came up to me and he, we were just like laughing. He was like, <laughs> that was so funny. We were just talking about this stuff. I really enjoyed reading it. I'm like, oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And we just, you know, said, I'll see you next time. And then I never saw him again because he took his own life. I don't, I don't feel guilty because there was no indication whatsoever. I wasn't close enough that he would share if he was struggling. I'm not sure he shared it with anybody, but it really caught me by surprise because we had such positive interactions every time. And then the other person I didn't know as well, he was an acquaintance, but he was highly respected in the community. And it was known that he struggled a lot. And 
that one in some ways was worse because he left three kids behind and their mom had died like a year earlier, cancer, I think. And so that one just felt bad because these kids were so dependent on him and because they had suffered so much tragedy in their lives in such a short time. It's, it is hard. It's harder for the people who are left behind. And I guess selfishly, if you can help prevent it, you'll help yourself too. But the thing with suicide is that it's, it's a strong feeling, but it's just, it's not persistent. You know, there's so many times, so many examples of people who are feeling suicidal and then later they weren't. And you can tell them it gets better. You're not going to feel this way all the time. And you're completely right. But whether that is integrated with them, whether they believe it, that's the challenge. Sometimes they can pull it off and sometimes they can. Yeah. And I mean, a, a lot of it is just being there and talking with the person too. you know, like we, we are not experts. Uh, we could maybe try and give some advice for how to try and handle the situation and make that person feel better. But ultimately I, I think they just need a person, you know, like someone around who is going to listen to them, who is able to show that they care. And sometimes that's enough. And I want to be clear too, that mental health professionals do lose patients to suicide too. Just having a, a doctor in front of your name doesn't mean you're perfect at this and suicide affects everybody everywhere. I think you asked about, I don't know, guilt or responsibility. When you do what I do, which is defend people accused of crimes, you learn pretty early on, or you're going to get burned out quickly. You're not responsible for other people's choices. Okay. People, people came to come to me a lot because they've made a mistake or they're accused of making a mistake. Some people are innocent. It's true, but some people are not, and they've made a mistake and it's, it's just not your responsibility. You can, you can help them. You can do the best you can, but you didn't create the situation. And if you do lose somebody that you're close to for suicide, I, like, like I told you, you probably made their lives better by being in it. And it's not your responsibility to, to save their life or tie them up so they can never do any self-harm. You can be present. You can ask them questions. You can tell them you're a resource. But ultimately, people do make their own choices, even if they're sick. And I know it's, it's, it's easy to say that. And then, you know, when it's there and you're like, what could I have done differently? But right. you, don't, so you don't know. In, in your profession, it's like, yeah, some people have made these choices. Some people have messed up. But we're talking about a situation where, you know, can you help convince someone to not make a bad choice, right? Like those are those are totally different. And I understand that you can't necessarily stop someone from making a mistake or, you know, doing something or feeling the way that their brain is, you know, making them feel, but you you can help and it's tough for me to wrap my head around the fact that like for magic, right? It's just like, I always feel like any given tournament, I always could have done more. Any article I write, I feel like I always could have done more, could have done better. You know, obviously that's tricky because at no point am I really going to let myself off the hook for not doing enough. But at the same time, when it comes to humans who are living and breathing and are real people and have relationships and people care about them and everything. It's just like, it, it matters so much more to me than, you know, whether or not I prepared as much for a tournament or, or whatever. Right. So like, I'm going to be harder on myself over this stuff than anything else too. And yeah, it's much higher stakes than a tournament. So of course you will be. And it's totally natural. I just would suggest people, you Jerry and other people don't 
put yourself into an impossible situation. Don't put yourself to such a high standard that you'll never meet it. It's kind of what we talked about in the beginning. Give yourself permission to accept a small victory to say something good happened here. It's funny you bring up about you know my work because my next blog post that I've started writing for a couple months is about kind of looking under the surface of why the bad choices may have happened. Because when I first started out, I was just like, we're going to win this case or get a good deal or something. And then that's it. And just let them go. And now as I've matured and I've done this for longer, I do take the opportunity to look at like, what happened? Why did this person, you know, drink and drive or get into a fight or steal something or, you know, whatever it is, what, what was going on in their life that this, this occurred. And sometimes I'm able to give them a perspective about making a change. And I'm lucky that I have the opportunity to do that because I'm this third party who's not connected to their life in any way. And I've, I have a lot of experience seeing this stuff before. So I can usually give them some perspective. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. You know, people are going to do what they're going to do. We talked about not, not yeah. setting yourself up for failure by, by defining success over things you can't control. And you really can't control other people. You cannot do that. You can be, a, you can be available for them. You, you can't control them. But you can influence them. Sure. They, or you can try to. I mean, you, sure. So you, could do, you could try whatever you want. I think it's more about being available, being non-judgmental. You know, we talked about people when you were saying you're having a bad day and people laughing at you and making fun of you. Like, don't do that. <laughs> if somebody says something that's tragic is going on in their life or they're feeling bad, just be like, wow, that, that sucks. I'm really sorry you're feeling that way. And just be utterly non-judgmental about it and allow them to share more with you and just let them do their thing. But yeah, you can try to influence them as much as you want. It doesn't always work. And if you expect you are so good at persuasion that people will do what you want, you're, you've probably got a, a rude awakening coming. Yeah, it's, it's not about persuasion. It is definitely more along the lines of what you're talking about, where it's like, you know, you're just being a good friend and being there for them. And I agree, obviously that at a lot of points that is just not enough. And you know, whatever it is the person in question needs or thinks they need or whatever. It's just like, you know, no one can really provide that. That's just sort of how it is. I mean, it's a disease. They they have a brain problem that has them interpret their life in a way that's not accurate. They really don't have to kill themselves to feel better about themselves, but their brain is telling them that. And you, you can't control that. You're not, you're not tinkering with the internal processes. You hope they ask for help and say, I know my brain isn't working right right now. I'm getting these terrible, dark thoughts. Can you help me? Can I talk about them with you? And sometimes just talking about them is enough to make them go away or start like looking at things in a way that you can make yourself healthier. But if they're not going to do anything and you have no idea, like you can't do anything about it. It's a tragedy. It doesn't mean it is preventable. I am happy that my friend who took his own life, that our last interaction together was a positive one. Like that gives me pleasure that at that day we had a laugh together. You know, I don't feel responsible for him taking his right. life. I feel regret that it occurred and I feel bad that he was obviously in so much pain, but I also take solace in the fact that we had a nice experience together before he died. Yeah. And just the last thing he talked to you about was somehow you talked about garlic bread and it made his day. It was a good post. I'll, I'll send it to works. you. You'll appreciate it. Jerry. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> maybe you send it to me and then I'll, I'll wait until I'm having a bad day <laughs> and then I'll read it. If it brings a smile to your face, then I've, I've done my work. Oh, yeah, dude. Then you're crushing it for sure. So can I tell you, can so, I tell you a story, a magic story? 
Or are yes. we out of time? Oh, we love stories. Okay. We love stories. So I played this Grand Prix in Seattle, right? And I had not played for years. And I looked at the spoiler and I'm like, yep, there's a lot of mechanics here. This will be fun. A lot of interactions. And so the first day was sealed deck and I made I did 8-1. And we were like, how are you doing 8-1? You know, you haven't played in years. I'm like, yeah, but I played a lot before then. <laughs> you know, things were going fine. <laughs> so I, I made it day two and I'm drafting. And I think my deck is okay. But again, the lack of drafting experience is really what separates the people who are experienced from those who aren't because your card valuations are different based on the full picture. I think you know this, Jerry. And so cards, cards that I was rating highly, I wasn't super wrong about, but I could have done things a little bit differently. Okay. Just, I'm not going to get into details because it's a dead format, but when I showed people my deck and they were like, this card is pretty good, but not as good as you think it is. You shouldn't have taken that highly. I'm like, okay, that makes sense after playing some games. So I, I draft and my wife brought our kids with, with them to the convention center to watch for a little while, which was really fun for me that they came and they were enjoying seeing a magic tournament because, you know, there's dealer tables and there's art and artists and people in costume. And so they're having a great time. And so I win my first round. Great. And then I'm playing round two and I'm talking to my opponent about my son who we're doing potty training on and we're having a good time. We're chatting and I'm talking to him about when you're potty training a boy, you've got to hold their penis a lot to like aim it correctly. So they don't, you know, piss on their legs or piss in your face or something like that. Right. And makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I'll tell you, by the way, for non-parents versus parents, your tolerance for talking about peeing and pooping go way, way, way up when you're a parent because you see so much of it. It's like, it's like oh, not yeah. a thing anymore. So anyway, we're talking about that. Um, and then my opponent's like, I got to use the bathroom. I'm going to call a judge. And so the judge comes over and I'm, and I'm still joking around. I'm like, oh, you know, he's going to help you pee. Make sure you aim right. Oh, geez. Yeah, totally inappropriate. Totally gross, whatever. And we're laughing, whatever. Um, so he comes back and he, he crushes me, absolutely crushes me. Because the, there's a card that you stack a creature and it gets 4-2 flying and haste. Like, what are they doing with this card? But anyway, so he beats the crap out of me. So I'm done really quick. It's 4-4, four, four, by the way. 4-4 four, four now? Sure. Add two toughness to it. That's fine. It's already broken. Whatever. So, yeah, it just becomes a dragon, you know? Sure. We're all dragons. So anyway, so the round's over really quick. Like, we're talking. We're having a bathroom break. He still crushes me utterly. That's fine. So 40, 40, 45 minutes later, they put up pairings for the next round. And then as I'm sitting down to my opponent, the judge comes over and he's like, I've been thinking about it for a while. I'm going to give you a warning now. And I'm like, for what? And he's like, that comment about the bathroom was really inappropriate. I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry. Let me explain. He's like, oh, I wasn't offended, but I think somebody else listening could have been offended. And so I thought about it for the last 45 minutes and I decided to give you a warning. And I'm like, well, you could have given it to me at the time, or you could have called me up to the the table to to give me the warning. And he's like, no, I really wanted to think about it. I really wanted to wait till the next round started so I could find you and, and tell you this. So, like, I'm just mad about this point. Like, is this, this kid, this judge is like 19 or 20 or something, no perspective. And, you know, he's right that it's probably gross and probably inappropriate. I just wish he had told me at the moment rather than waiting until, like, my head is in the next match space, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's like talking to me and he, he really wants me to believe that he's making the right call and it was correct awaiting. I'm just like, I'm not, I don't agree with you at all. And he's like, well, whatever. So gives the warning. And so my head is completely out of it. And he is, he's got like a smug look, you know, in the corner and I lose. And I don't think I played badly. I think I just, you know, got out and matched or whatever. And I lost, but I know I can feel it like 
I'm really annoyed by this interaction, by this judge who doesn't know what he's doing and needs to decide, take 40 minutes to decide if someone is offended or not. Am I going to be able to enjoy myself playing in this tournament for these last two rounds? Because I'm nine and three at this point. I'd probably out of the top eight, but I'm still in the hunt for money if I want to keep playing. And I just like, no, you know what? I'm not going to have a good time. I already know that I'm just upset by this bad judge call or this bad judge timing. Um, so I just dropped and I collected my packs and I spent the rest of the day with the family. And I know five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have just powered through, maybe made some money, maybe not. But I know I would have like had a diminished experience because of this. And I could just tell that it was bugging me and that it, if I stayed there longer, I was probably going to have just a worse day. Most likely I was probably going to pl- start playing bad and just not enjoy myself and every loss would feel worse than it normally would, that kind of thing. And so I left and I felt really comfortable making that choice for myself, even though I technically forfeited some potential for prizes. Um, and that just felt like a mature thing to do. And I'm, I'm glad I did it. Yeah, right on, man. Yeah. So like, I, I don't know if you want to call talk about the specifics of the judge call or not. It's like, it, it feels like it is certainly reasonable for him to give you a warning, but I agree that it's not correct for him to like, you know, try and start this like right before you're supposed to play a match. Yeah, if he you know, if he wants to that, say at the time, we don't talk about penises, little boy penises in the tournament. I'd say okay, but if you're gonna wait, if you're gonna wait till the next round starts and then call me out of that round just to like talk to me before I'm about to sit down and focus on my match, it just feels incompetent. Like I said, the kid was young, you know, a really young guy, and like when you get older, Jerry, as you know, you start getting like perspective and you start, you know, understanding the timing of things, but sometimes, sometimes you hope you do. And it's fine. Like, you know, kids are kids, but knowing that that person had that authority out there and was doing these things was, was upsetting for me at that moment. And so yeah. I just want to want to go follow through with it. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about them sitting in the corner with like a smug face too. It's just like, that is completely outside of what judges should be there doing. Right. It's like, you're, you're supposed to be there to be impartial and, you know, not just exert your power over other people. You would hope. And you would hope. Like I said, if he did at yeah, the time, you would hope. If he did at the time, I would have said, I don't agree. But as a parent, I know not everybody is a parent with these different standards. I get it. I'm not going to argue about it. But yeah, waiting till the next round starts, waiting 40 minutes, you know, it's like a, a throwaway joke. And then, <laughs> oh, by the way, bring it up and explain yourself and justify yourself. And by the way, nothing you say is going to matter to me. I've already made up my mind. Right. It's like, okay, well now I'm just, now my mind is completely in somewhere else. Do you think in the early two thousands you would have appealed? Oh, or I, at least I like appealed gone harder? Yeah, I did. And, and the guy was okay. like, no, I talked about it with him already. It's nothing you can say matters. It was clear oh. that he had set the narrative in a way that there was nothing I could say. Sure. Well, cover, covered his tracks at least. Just made it so he couldn't fail when he actually did give you the thing and whatever. Yeah, I think that was where the smugness was really coming through. It's like, there's nothing. This thing is already done. Like, what are you trying to do? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so in 2000. Yeah, I don't, you know, I think if in 2000 I would have kept playing and I think I would have just had a bad day, honestly. It's hard to know the future, but I think I just would have yeah. had a worse day. And I had a great day. I left, I collected my packs. I was a little annoyed by the finish, but I didn't, I didn't need the cash and I would rather just spend time with my kids. I would being the playing the top eight would have been awesome. But since that wasn't really on the table, spend the time with my kids and, you know, go take them for a walk in the park. And that's what I did. And it was fine. Yeah. There, there are things that are more important. So you're not 
keeping up with Magic a ton, I imagine that you are not very familiar with my exact tournament finishes recently. So I'm, I, I'm going to assume you've won everything you've played in, but I don't know for sure. I haven't won a match in a year and a half, actually. But <laughs> you got to scrap your DCI number and just start somebody something new. I think that's what the dude. The trick I is. wish I, I want to be in your position so bad, where it's like you know you're an old man now. You show up to like a local store, or PTQ or whatever. People have no idea who you are. It's just got to be great to be under the radar, man. I, I've always loved it. Even when I was in my heyday, I would just enjoy wearing hoodies, and they would say, "Do I know you from somewhere?" And I'd say, "I don't. I don't think so. Maybe you're thinking of like No Boykin or something. I don't know." Yeah, it's. I love being anonymous. I love being fun. But even when I was at the tournament, some people, some people would say, "Do I know you?" And I would, I would say, "I don't know." Maybe, but let's just play. It's fun. <laughs> anyway, story for you. Okay. My mental the last couple years has been a lot better. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm just willing to drop from tournaments on a whim and just do whatever sort of strikes my fancy in the meantime. You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever. It's just like you you signed up for the tournament, right? If you're in contention for anything, you just have to continue playing. That's just the rule. And I I just threw that in the trash. I just don't care anymore. So limp into day two of a pro tour at four and four. Uh, sit down for my draft. On my right is a friend of mine who I know loves like blue, red, green, some color combination like that. I like white aggressive decks. They're not very good. I end up kind of forcing it, but also getting signals. And, you know, sure enough, my my homies in his desired color combination, I'm almost mono white splash red, but my deck is garbage. And I play round one against uh, Guillaume Wafotapa. Do you know this guy? Yeah, I know the name. Okay, so he's French dude, always plays control, basically doesn't say a word. And we play and we have a history. He basically always beats me. It's generally like him playing great, me being stupid. And this time was no exception. I blow it. I lose. I think about it for a second. I check the drop box and he looks at me and he's just like, you're dropping. Why? And I said, Guillaume, there's more to life than money. And he just kind of like smiled and nodded. Right. And then I dropped, went on my merry way, etc. Fast forward a couple of pro tours later, play Guillaume at one and two, maybe one and three, I don't know, but I beat him this time in Constructed, and he thinks for a little bit, checks the Dropbox, and I was like, you know, just kind of being facetious, right? I'm just like, you know, Guillaume, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're still in contention. You could make day two, whatever, and he just smiled and said, there's more to life than money, and then he just like drove home or whatever, you know? And it, it's just things like that. It's like, you're, you're having a bad day. Things, things aren't working out for you, if you have something you would rather be doing, just go do that. And you know, the thing is, I love that story and I, I think that's great. And the thing is also what people really fail to remember is if you're feeling bad, you're going to play worse also. It's not just that you're not going to have a good time. Your play will be noticeably worse if you're just grumpy about everything and irritated about everything. And then you're going to lose and then you're going to feel bad. Yep. It's a spiral. Every success um, in tournament has been because I was feeling good and I was playing well and those things are just linked. Yeah. The, the last pro tour I top aided was kind of the opposite where my friend Corey McDuffie definitely had some mental health issues and 
uh, as a result kind of was into drugs and stuff and did not die via suicide. But like the morning before the tournament, I found out that, you know, some some stuff had happened. He was in a coma. They didn't expect him to wake up. And I end up top eighting this pro tour and I, w- I definitely was not in a good mood. I was definitely very rude to all of my opponents. I was just mad. I was just mad the whole time, you know, and yeah, I don't know. Like Corey was like one of the just fiercest competitors that I knew. He respected it so much and he did everything that he could to be able to win. That was not crossing a line. And I, I basically just stayed in the tournament for him, you know, and sure enough, you know, like did was, was not feeling good, but had a focus and it was for him and I ended up getting second, you know? So like that sort of thing can happen for sure. Yeah. I, I would say that if that seems a little different to me, if it's like an external event rather than just your own brain chemicals yeah. saying you're not in there. And then, you know, we talked about this judge gall and all the rest of it being something, but you know, if you can make it work, great. I could just say from personal experience when I know I've been grumpy and I've tried to stick it out, almost always regretted it. Yeah. Maybe maybe it made financial sense, but as far as like net happiness of my day, there's no way. Right. And a lot of that depends on what else you have going on. Like if you are able to have varied interests and you have something else that you would enjoy doing, even if it's just like rail birding people and talking to them about their matches and not just playing your own, you know, I think that you can find a decent amount of enjoyment from that and just release yourself from the tournament. Like that is okay. Yeah, it is okay. And that's why I also say have something set up ahead of time because you're not going to lose a nail biter match winning in and then take a knitting in the next hour. Like if you have something in place, great. But if you don't, then you're going to, you're going to feel it for a while. Yeah. You kind of said this before. It's hard when you're feeling good to imagine not feeling good and having some plan in place for then. And when you're feeling so terrible, that's not the time to make plans either. So being, you know, prescient and thinking about your own styles, your own habits, and having something in place ahead of time before you need it is smart, if if sometimes hard to pull off. Yeah, right now for me, I, there, there's always content to work on. You know, I have a, a bunch of different things in the works and I can always be spending time on that and I actually enjoy it. So it just kind of works out. There was a period for, you know, the last two or three years where I was playing like a bunch of other different card games or I would watch like coverage of uh, tournaments from other games, you know, stuff like that, or even just like reading, writing, whatever. It is definitely important to have something for me, at least where it's like, well, if I have some amount of downtime or I don't like what I'm doing, I can switch to this and I know I'll enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's good. And you try something. If you don't like it, find something else. People's interests change over time and it's, it's fine. It's fun to explore and find something that you're into. Yeah, absolutely. So doing, doing this podcast is, uh, you know, one step towards destigmatizing mental health and talking about it. And, you know, I, I hope this was helpful for some people and, just hearing that it it does affect other people and you know these are kind of our stories and and what our lives have been like surrounding all this sort of stuff but for people who are listening noah what do you suggest if they also care about mental health and you know maybe have people who they care about that are affected by this sort of stuff like what can they do to help or help destigmatize 
I mean, that's a, that's a big question. If you're talking about helping yourself, I've got no problem with therapy. I've got no problem with counseling. Medication, some people respond to it really well. Some people don't. And I think where a lot of people get messed up on medication is thinking there'll be instantaneous results when it usually takes some time to enter your bloodstream and actually do something. Or the Can't side confirm. effects are bad. <laughs> or the side effects are bad and they just stop entirely rather than trying some new medication. Also can confirm. Also not in any way qualified to talk about medication in any way, but I certainly recommend people talk to strangers or therapists, counselors, doctors, if they have an issue. Um, I really do, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a pleasure for me to be this independent third party sometimes in people's lives because I have that perspective. There really is a lot of advantage to talking not to your mom or dad or your friend, but to somebody who just doesn't know you and telling them what's going on in your life and seeing if they have a perspective on if you have a need that they can address or point you in the right direction. Um, if you want to be a resource for other people, I would say get healthy for yourself too. Sometimes in the process of getting yourself healthy, you learn about patterns in other people that you can share with them and say, hey, I was experiencing the same issue. Here's what I learned. Let me, let me help you with your thing too being aware, asking questions. How are you doing? I saw a lawyer on a bench uh, in court a couple months ago who had a really bad, really bad time with a judge in a, a situation. And I just sat down and said, hey man, how are you doing? Can I do anything to help? And I couldn't do anything to help, but he really appreciated just knowing that someone recognized that he was having a tough time and sat down next to him. Yeah. So just taking a minute and asking a question by itself can be helpful. Even if there's no like, you can't fix this, being present is still helpful to people. Or at the very least, you know, for that person, you kind of shifted the dynamic of how their day was going where a random person approached you and actually cared about what was going on with you. You know, like you might have been having a bad day now, but the good aspect of this, the positivity of it far negates the bad stuff that happened, right? Yeah, and we've all been there. We've all had a bad experience with a judge or authority figure or roll the dice or anything else. We've all been there. Every single person listening to this has had that experience before. So it's not like it's a reach to say, I've been in that place. I know it sucks. I'm sorry you're feeling that way too. Yeah, just show a little empathy. Show them that there are people that care. They're not alone. And it, it goes so far, man. And then maybe they'll lend you cards for the next tournament. and Everyone's happy. <laughs> just all about... Uh, acquiring that social currency, huh? Make it tr make it as transactional as possible. Make sure you're getting something at, on the back end. But yeah, for them right now, just help them feel better. And for that, just that little comment, that last ninety minutes, just oh yeah, undone. yeah. <laughs> Everything People are just like, man, that guy is a dick. But you can't you can't say that though because you'll get a warning. I can't keep it straight for ninety minutes. Like eighty minutes, I can I can sound like a reasonable guy who knows what he's talking about. And then the last little bit, I'm just like, oh, that's who he is. Okay, I got it now. Yeah i I could do a whole other podcast on that topic, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, any anything else you want to share? Uh, also, you, like actually plug your blog this time. Talk about you know the the URL so that people could find it. Okay. Not that it's monetized in any way, but my website is betternoahlawyer.com, B-E-T-T-E-R, my name, N-O-A-H, lawyer.com. I have a blog that I've kept for seven years or so with varying levels of posting. I am due to post. I will do one soon. 
And uh, I enjoy writing about the law because I just enjoy the subject, talking about it, thinking about it. So I think that comes through that it's just a fun topic for me. It's a marketing thing, but I also generally enjoy the subject. That's kind of it. I don't have any projects. You're not going to see me in any tournaments. I have this podcast that won't be released for a good long time. And I'll let people know about that. So if, if you need a lawyer, I'm probably not in your area. But if you want, if you are charged with a crime in King County or Western Washington, sure, give me a call. We'll figure it out. But uh, for the most part, you know, I'm just, I hope I helped. And I hope you continue to help and feel good, Jerry. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to chat about this stuff with the people who are listening. Yeah, man. Any, anytime. Like I said, you, you writing that article 2005, uh, it, it definitely... Like whenever I think of mental health in gaming, I actually think about you, which I don't know. Maybe that's weird, but like you, you were, you were, you were the first person. So <laughs> I, I think that's very kind. Thank you. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad to have you on anytime. Uh, you're great, and we should hang out more, or you should invite me to your stand up night thing. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it's a deal. That's that, that's all I got. Uh, f- so for this podcast, generally I will sign it out by saying that's game and just in, in any way you want, you know, like loud, high pitch, slow, whatever. Uh, so you, you get that opportunity since you're the guest. That's game. Good luck.